This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with Joe Karsha, NJ1Q, and he is the station manager of W1AW. That's the Hiram Percy Maxim Memorial Station at ARRL headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Steve, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. Well, you know, we've talked before on the podcast about uh, things technical, and this time around I'd like to, well throw you a curveball, Joe. Uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that in your practice day-to-day of managing that complicated station, everything just goes perfectly. Nothing ever goes wrong. Equipment never fails, right? That is very true. With the exception of today, that is very true. Everything <laughs> runs it's a smooth ship here, <laughs> normally, kind of, sort of. What I'd, what I'd like to do is uh, take a page from a friend of mine who's a medical doctor, and he was telling me once how when uh, he was in medical school, there was one professor, one particular class, where the professor would select a student and would suddenly throw at him or her a hypothetical patient that had shown up with a certain number of symptoms and you okay. had you had to take it from there and try to figure out what was wrong and the proper treatment well for example he would say okay you've got a 45 year old female who is presenting with a 102 degree fever and uh, blotchy red skin and then they would just go from there okay i remember by the way he told me well, can I ask her what she had to eat and how recently? And the professor barked, why, no, she's unconscious. <laughs> you can't ask her that. <laughs> so <laughs> he kind of made like things up. As, the house. You know, <laughs> he made things up as he went along. But here's our first hypothetical patient, okay? Okay. Lay it on me. Lay it on you. Joe, you're about to fire up. A bulletin transmission on 40 meters to that nice 40-meter beam you have there. Yep. Suddenly, you see that the SWR is sky high. So, of course, the power folds back. What, okay. What do you do? What's your first step? The very first thing, first, first thing I would do would obviously would be to take that transmitter, the amplifier, out of the transmit cycle. And I'm lucky here in that all my transmitters are independent. So I can put them all in transmit or I can take them in and out of transmit if necessary. So in that regard, I would not affect the other transmitters. So the first thing I do is I would take it out of transmit. And the next thing I would do, uh, no one's going to suggest WR problem would be, okay, this, the first thing is it may be an antenna issue. So I would check the connection, the coaxial jumper that I have between the exciter antenna port and the antenna port. And 
if that wasn't the issue, the next thing I would check would be the actual connections in the back of the amplifier. I would go and I would physically check to see if, if something occurred. Was there um, a small arc or something that kind of discolored the connection coming off the back of the amplifier? If that looked good, the next thing I would do, would I would take the antenna out of the the whole loop here, and I would put the transmitter and amplifier onto one of my high-power dummy loads, and I would check to see if I still had that highest of your condition. If I did, then I would say, okay, either it's an amplifier issue or it's still a cable issue. If I didn't, then the next thing would be, okay, it's an antenna issue, and we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But if I found that with the dummy load, it was the high SWR condition. I would next check to see if the amplifier actually switched bands. Now, I have amplifiers that have frequency counters in them that they sample the RF, or if I have it cat-controlled, it may not have switched bands. So maybe for whatever reason, I'm on 40 meters, but the amplifier thinks it's on 20. So I would check to see that the amplifier was actually on the proper band. If I find the amplifier is on the proper band, the antenna connections are good, the cable is good, and I'm still getting this full back, this highest of our condition, then I would take it out and say, okay, now i got to open up to see if I have maybe a tube issue or maybe the relay in the amplifier had failed. And that's where I would take it from that point. Now, if I, I did all the testing, it's on the proper band, the cable's good, I put it on to the dummy load and the SWR is good, I hook it to the antenna, I find it's a high SWR condition, well, now I will focus my intention on the antenna. And I can't test it when I'm transmitting, but as soon as the transmissions were done, the first thing I would do is I would take that particular antenna, in this case, 40 meter, and I would put it on another transmitter. And I can do that because of the cabling I have here. And if I found that even on a different transmitter, the SWR was high, I would start backtracking it from there. So I would go down and I would check the cabling from the connection inside the building out to my antenna box. And I, I can easily do that because I can essentially pull cables and put little dummy loads on them and so forth. From there, I would check to see if there was a break or an SWR condition. If there wasn't, the next thing I would actually check would be my polyphasers. I have lightning arresters. And if I found the polyphaser was good, well, now it's like, okay, I can now go on the other side of the polyphaser and connect directly to the antenna. If I still had an SWR condition there, well, now I'm a little stuck. If I did a visual and it looked okay, but I'm still having a high SWR condition, I'm kind of stuck in that now I actually have to get my antenna contractor down here to actually check out the antenna. If I found, however, that the cable coming from the building to the polyphaser was good and I'm getting a good SWR condition on, say, an analyzer going up to the antenna, well, then I would check the polyphaser, the lightning arrestor, to see if that was the issue. And it's interesting you you bring in the scenario because I've actually had that happen in the past. I've actually had polyphasers, my lightning arrestors, fail. Uh, whether they failed because of old age or because they were actually doing their job, it's hard to tell. But that would be the the course that I would take to determine what might be the issue. 
So you break it down into a number of steps and investigate each step. Correct, because for me here at WNAW, there are, you know, for lack of a better bunch of terms, there are a number of failure points. It could be anywhere between the amplifier to my patch panel, from my patch panel down to my large patch panel down the cellar, from there out to the antenna box, from there through a lightning arrestor up to the cable to the antenna. So there are a number of points I have to check because it, it at any time, anything could fail, I, and a, a cable could – there could be a spike someplace where now a cable might be damaged, or again, in the case of a lightning arrestor, a lightning arrestor may fail. In a worst case, an antenna failure could be anything from the ballon on this particular antenna may have failed to something went on the connection to it. Um, a squirrel could have chewed through the hard line. I actually have an issue with that, where they'll they'll chew through the insulation to get to the to the copper. Um, so there's a number of failure points that I would have to check, as opposed to a regular amateur radio operator setup, to where they may only have one or two failure points. I have multiple failure points, so I have to I actually have to go through and check each one. It's about identifying those failure points, correct? Yes, because in, in my case here at WNAW, there are multiple failure points. How about this? Let's let's give you another patient, okay? Okay. <laughs> or another another scenario. Let's try this. Another scenario. I like that, yeah. This one actually happened to me, but let's see how Joe approaches it. Okay. When you're transmitting on 40-meter RTTY, okay. the computer locks up. While you're transmitting, the computer locks up. It will not unlock unless you completely turn off the radio, and then the computer will recover. How would okay. you pursue that? If I had an issue where my computer uh, was locked up and it was transmitting, I'm for W1AW, it is a simple matter for me just to disable completely all the transmitters, just take them all offline, because now it could just be sending a carrier, it could be sending garbage. I would immediately take it just out of transmit, and because of the system I'm using here, if I found that I couldn't necessarily just shut off the computer, or maybe I could, or, or send to that, I would actually disconnect the USB cable to see if that would unkey all the transmitters, because maybe my King interface had failed. I'm using... Uh, optocouplers to key into the king matrix. So the first thing I would do, obviously, would be to take them out of transmit and then work backwards from there. Did, did the USB fail? Did It is a Windows system, and we all know how Windows operates sometimes. Was it a window glitch or something of that nature? But take them out of transmit and then immediately disconnect the USB to see if it's actually the interface that has failed. Well, that makes sense. And in my particular case, in my real-world incident, I was transmitting on 40 meters on a particular frequency. Okay. And it would lock up my keyboard. And Ouch. I couldn't disengage the transmitter. It was just, which was doubly embarrassing because it was sending my call sign over and over, which is, you know. Oh my. But <laughs> at any rate, once I got everything under control... As you just recently said, I had to isolate the various failure points, and it didn't mm -hmm. take long. Uh, obviously, 
the keyboard, uh, this in my case, it was a USB keyboard when I unplugged it from the computer and substituted a wireless keyboard. This was a wired keyboard. Uh, yes. No problem whatsoever. I could transmit no problem. It was safe for me to assume that RF was somehow getting into the cable between the keyboard and the computer. Why at a specific frequency? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> uh, perhaps the uh, cable was just the right length and it was in some way resonant. Uh, in mm -hmm. my case, the solution was to wrap about 10 turns of the cable. Fortunately, it was a long cable through a uh, Type 43 uh, ferrite toroid. Yes. And sure enough, that suppressed the RF that was on the cable, and, and I was good to go. Have you ever run into that kind of a situation, like an interference situation there? I have. And we would do exactly the same thing you would do. And specifically, the uh, FT240-43, that is one of the, at least in my view, one of the most common uh, toroids that you can use to help eliminate these issues with currents on the line. Uh, I've had to do it with uh, some of the lines on some of the other computers in one of my operating studios where RF was getting into it, and we're transmitting on nine bands simultaneously, high power. So there is a lot of RF floating around here. Uh, so just winding, whether it be a, a mouse or a keyboard, speakers, with uh, Type 43 materials, again, I found the FT24043s work great, actually helped eliminate a lot of the RF issues. Yes. And you're actually winding those through toroids. You're not using, uh, say, clamp-on ferrites. Uh, no. In, in some cases, if it's like speakers, because I do have a few of them here because we're monitoring audio for whatever the reason, I would use the clamp-ons. Uh, they they worked, and I'm going to sound a little bit like a snob, but I, I'll use the the clamp-ons like the kind you get like at the old Radio Shack or someplace like that. I would use them for speakers, but for anything specific or it was really important, even or if it was coaxial, if it was an antenna situation, I used the actual toroids. And for me, that was just a personal preference. I would wind as many turns as I can physically get on there, both physically in terms of the length, but also where I'm not limiting the length of the connection to the peripheral device. And then I would use tie wraps to hold the wires down. So I would use both, but it would depend upon the situation. Well, that makes sense. All right, Joe, one more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, you just mentioned that you run some serious power there, and I've yeah. seen the amplifiers uh, in their mm -hmm. racks in the cooling bay there. Have you ever had one suddenly go bang? And I mean really bang. And if so, uh, what was your uh, what steps did you follow from that? Uh, yes, I've actually had a couple of bangs, and not just figuratively, but literally, we would we'd turn these things on, and you would hear a bang. Those were when I had the Harris amplifiers in here, and within the power supplies, uh, the the Harris these are the Harris commercial amplifiers. They would have these extremely large, heavy switching and linear power supplies that would deliver the 48 volts and 50 amps, the 12 volts, the 5 volts, and 8 volts. And the transorbs, the mobs, which were on the AC lines, would fail. 
and they just wouldn't fail with a whimper. When these things fail, they failed, and you would hear them, and you can smell them, and you can see them. Uh, thankfully, for my applications here, when transorbs would, when the the mobs would fail, uh, they would take out the breaker. So immediately the power was disconnected to the unit. But I have had that happen here uh, with the Harris amplifier power supplies. I have yet to, knock on wood, have that issue with any of my other amplifiers. And I'm using a combination of alphas, ACOMs, and ICPW1s. Oh, so no flash and bang that brought you up out of your chair. Nothing like that. Uh, nothing like that, no. Um, I have had issues with static discharge, and if I'm disconnecting a connection, whether it be through an extremely heavy rainstorm or in the summertime or a heavy snowstorm, if I'm disconnecting a connection for those reasons or for whatever the reason, I would get discharge through, and that's actually happened to me, I can say, two times it would discharge and I would have an arc from the center pin to the connection. That's th- those are, they're not a little jarring, but they keep you on your toes because you're not expecting it. You do feel a little bit and you kind of hear it, but the, the mobs going on the AC side, those, those tend to get your attention because you, you <laughs> heard those when they would fail and you knew right away. We, we knew right away. You turn on the power and within a second or so you'd hear that, bang and the power would go off the breaker would shut off and you go yep i know what that is you pull it out sure enough there's a black char where there once was an an mov uh, a suppressor and of course for you the option to fix something isn't perhaps as simple as send it back to the factory you've you've got to get it up and running Uh, correct and and that's why I loved the Harris amplifiers and their power supplies because I could repair those. On the amplifiers, generally, unless there was some catastrophic failure for something else, on the amplifiers, they're very straightforward amplifier through hole technology with very few SMD. A lot of times they would, they're transorbs. They're essentially bidirectional diodes which are on the sets and they would fail as part of a protection. And there was a test procedure that we would use to determine if it was in fact the transorb or the FET that failed. I can work on those real easily. In fact, I would just like buy a bulk set of the transorbs from uh, other manufacturers or other suppliers, I won't say names, and I would have them in supply. So I can easily repair those. The mobs, I would just buy them in bulk and I would I can get into the power supply and repair those as well. And that would just take an hour or so. A lot of times it was just disassembling the units before I can get to the actual mobs in there to replace them. But I would have to get this stuff up and running. I did have spare power supplies for the Harris's. So if one failed, I can take one out and put another one in and still be back on the air while I'm repairing that one that had failed. And you have an impressive repair workbench. I've seen it. Uh, it's it's messy. <laughs> There's a <laughs> lot of stuff in there. Uh, but I have your generic complement of equipment. Obviously, uh, a digital voltmeter. I do have a spectrum analyzer on the outside frequency counter. I have an oscilloscope, power supply, a frequency generator, signal tracer, 
all the stuff that I would need to make general repairs on this stuff. And I try to repair the stuff if I could. If it cannot be repaired, and some of it can't because it requires actual jigs, then it would have to be sent back to the factory. But uh, we would try to repair stuff as best we could here. And you do a wonderful job, Joe. I, I try my best. Sometimes it's just, you know, fingers crossed and hoping that whatever the, the failure is, I have the equipment or the parts here to repair it. A lot of hams are depending on hearing your signals every day. I am very glad of that. It's, it's nice to hear when hams say, gee, w, I heard W1W or they'll send me a signal report. It's an SWRL report. They want a card. And we do acknowledge those, by the way. I will actually send out cards for SWRL reports on our transmissions. And especially now that we've increased the number of qualifying run transmissions, they're, they're dependent on that. And some of them just use us for a frequency source. Because I conduct frequency measuring tests two or three times a month on my equipment, I can say with both a straight face and a high level of confidence that I am maybe worst case after a week or so one or two hertz off of my published frequencies. Wow. So if I say that I'm on, for example, seven dot zero four seven five zero zero megahertz, I am there, give or take a hertz, because I I look at it this way. Our published frequencies end on the half kilohertz, for example, 7047.5. But in my view, that's not 0.568 or 0.521 or something of that nature. It's, it should be 0.500. So I will conduct measure, frequency measuring tests on the equipment and adjust the transmitters accordingly because it, I don't have any 10 megahertz reference source. These transceivers don't accept that. But I will adjust these things to where if you were to measure me, you know, taking propagation into consideration and the time, worst case, I may be one or two hertz off from my published frequency. That's excellent. Well, thank you very much, Joe. This has been interesting. Uh, you're most welcome, and thank you for the opportunity. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at ARRL.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.